electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, and welcome, everybody, to CNBC's Fast Money and our continued coverage of the markets in turmoil. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us. Another big night, and we pretty much gave back in the market everything that we gained yesterday. Up one day, down the next. The Dow Jones Industrial Average falling over 400 points. The Nasdaq, which soared yesterday, losing 1.5% today. And we have got your team lined up. We've got Karen, Guy, Tim, and Dan. Also got a great guest for you, Marco Kalanovich, the man who moves markets at J.P. Morgan. He thinks the bottom is in. He'll be here to explain why. We're going to talk about what he's seeing and why he's studying coronavirus trends around the world to try to understand the stock market. Netflix made a new high. Bed Bath & Beyond, that stock is actually up a little bit after hours, but it's down about 80% over the past year. We got a triple whammy, though. We got to start with really today in the market. Bad data on retail, oil falling to nearly 20-year lows, and banks continue to drop on their earnings concern. Guy Adami, of those three, because I would argue, and I said on Twitter, I didn't think data mattered at all. Of those three, which one matters the most to you? I think the fact that oil can't get out of its own way out of those three. I mean, bank earnings and bank uh, the way that banks have traded, I mean, we could talk about that. Uh, but the way the data we knew was going to be miserable, maybe it was worse than a lot of people thought. But the fact that, you know, all this bloviating and all this noise surrounding the oil market and it really can't get out of its own way. And that rally really only lasted a couple days. I think it's somewhat concerning in terms of the day itself, though, given all those three things, given the run the broader market has had. I don't think today was all that bad. Again, I'm, I, you know, you know that I think the market's going to pause here and head back lower. But you know, given all the things you just mentioned, it could have been a lot worse today. So you have to take, I mean, there, there's, there's some silver lining on the back of that, I would think. Yeah, and I, I don't know who is surprised, Tim, by oil. I mean, the tanks are nearly full. Citigroup and others putting out notes saying basically we're almost out of storage. We, we, we could have, you know, much lower prices in the near term, at least for the current month contract. But, you know, I with all due respect to the show and the production, I don't know if those three things are enough. I mean, Germany is going to kind of start to slowly reopen its economy on Monday. Are we, are we not paying enough attention to some of the coronavirus-related information? I think we are, Brian. You know, I, I think the market is now trying to sort through the, the macro and, and the coronavirus. Look, on, on other days, today's data, first of all, retail sales uh, would have been said, you know, what, you know, how about the days we shrugged off uh, six and a half million jobless claims or unemployment numbers that were catastrophic or, or, or some of the other data? So retail sales doesn't, shouldn't, shouldn't matter either. Neither should that home builder index, which was a, a, a joke. I've never seen anything go straight down like that. That's worse than the Dragon Coaster at Playground. So, so if you think about today, Germany announces that they're going to start opening their economy on Monday. If we did this two weeks ago, this would be the headline and market would have been up three or four percent. So I, I think the market 
is a little exhausted here. I, I don't think you have to read so much into uh, some of today's price action. Guy alluded to the fact that it, it could have been a lot worse. It opened a lot worse. And if you look at names that, that have been outperforming and names that people want to own, um, there's a lot of names uh, across the S&P, but certainly across the NASDAQ 100 that are up on the year. So um, I, I think today's macro was, was horrendous in line with macro that people said didn't matter on other days. So why should it matter today? And it didn't seem to, Dan Nathan, and you guys have been concerned. Obviously, one day does not a trend make, but at the same time, the markets internally, some of these indexes that we talked about, they looked very weak again today. Yeah, one of them would be the Russell 2000 small caps. I've said it a few times over the last few weeks. I mean, that to me is probably a far better indication of just the immediate impact to U.S. businesses when you think about their leverage, you think about what makes up the Russell 2000 heavily exposed to financials and much weaker financial institutions than the ones that are reporting earnings this week, which have been disappointing. We see what the XLF has done this week alone, and that's made up, obviously, of the major money center banks and investment banks. So when you think of the Russell 2000 down 30 percent still from the recent highs just a couple months ago, I think that might be telling you um, a bit more of the story. I'll just make one other point about data. I, I think it's, um, I don't love to hear the term that data doesn't matter. Data does matter when it comes to the markets. What's really important is obviously as much visibility as you can get. Every piece of data matters. Every piece of data relative to other data, the historical data, the, the peer data, the geographic data. So keep consuming it. Keep coming up with adjectives about it. It will help you figure out what's going on and it will definitely be helpful versus the sentiment that you're seeing in the market because while the five to ten percent moves have obviously abated in the major indices moving around two to three percent historically is still a whole heck of a lot we need to find some sort of trend whatever the next trend is and it's only going to come with the data okay fair enough point with dan might disagree with my tweet then karen but listen as as a fund manager yourself Are you spending more of your time right now looking at market-related data, or are you spending more of your time related to coronavirus-related? I know that that most of my day seems to be spent looking at Johns Hopkins websites now, trying to understand trends of where we may be in a couple of weeks. How about you? I mean, I agree with that. That's data that I really want to know, coronavirus. But I'm sort of in the last few days in this, you know, Okay, we accept that we're, we're getting to the, the top of the mountain, going down the other side now. And so we turn our attention to can we open up the economy and how is that going to look? And I think that we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know. I, I, I really am very skeptical about this V-shaped recovery. And I feel like the market has really fully priced in a, a strong V-shape. And, I, and I'm skeptical that that will come to pass. So for me... What I look at is balance sheets first. Who can make it to the other side? Who can survive? And what kind of businesses won't be forever changed? So that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking at. I, I agree with I, I didn't I agree with with Guy and and Tim that I didn't think the market was so bad today at all, given the run that we've had. I thought it was it was fine, and I actually think the bank earnings have not been bad. They, they've been okay. They just don't know what this quarter is going to be like. And that's the data. When Dan talks about data, the data we want to see is what does, what does Main Street, what does the economy look like in this quarter that we're in? Because that's when we really start to feel the effects of what's happened. 
Yeah, certainly because so many stores really shut down in March or will be shut down and Bed Bath Beyond offering no guidance. The stores are shut. I'm not sure what numbers those are going to tell us. All right, let's bring in another voice to this, and that is Marco Kalanovic of J.P. Morgan. He has been uh, obviously well known to our guests here on Fast Money. And Marco, we're glad to have you back on the program, Macro Strategy Global Head. Uh, looking at your latest notes, and I mentioned the sort of the coronavirus data, I, I would almost say the Johns Hopkins data is the new jobs number in a certain way, if you know what I mean. For me, anyway, looking at this data, what are you looking at most closely to try to figure out what is probably almost an, an impossible situation to figure out? Thank you. So, as, as you mentioned, I think the virus data is now key. I mean, when it comes to economic, the normal times, they are very important. But right now, the economy was basically closed. It's, it, it was closed. So, so we know that these data are going to be abysmal. So the question is, can they jumpstart one when the virus subsides and when we open the economy? And for that, you need to know when will you be able to do that. And for that, you look at the virus data, not the sort of you know claims data or retail sales. We know that they're going to they're zero if people are people are locked in their homes by the order of government. So virus data, we looked, we started looking at the sort of big data, especially smart thermometers. About four weeks ago, uh, there's a, a provider of smart thermometers called Kinsa, and they're basically publishing daily, um, uh, which is pretty much a, a real time influenza-like uh, symptoms across the U.S. You know, so we look at the data first. We saw very early on that disease is spreading. And um, as soon as the measures uh, for social distancing were announced, th these typical influenza uh, illnesses uh, started dropping very, very quickly. You know, and so we could model, we could model daily increase. We could model daily decrease. We could model recovery, you know, of people. So mild cases, about two weeks, serious cases, three to five weeks. And we saw sort of early on that this better. And obviously, you want to mark to market yourself with the uh, uh, you know New York State uh, press conferences in the morning, late morning. You want to basically see net hospitalization. Uh, you want to see sort of um, uh, you know a few other other data points, obviously fatalities and which do lag, um, and yeah. also also intubation. So 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 our model is basically tracking to New York State data. And we we were already two weeks ago. We said Apex is going to happen. A week ago, and 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 we are getting actually now. And when I say apex, that's the basically net hospitalization growth inflection. I know it sounds a little bit a little convoluted, but that's basically when when you stop accelerating pressure on hospital and start decelerating. That happened already about seven, eight days. But ago. Tom, Marco, I got I got I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated, Marco. I'm sorry to jump sure. in. I'm fascinated by all Please. this stuff, but I need to tie it back to what we do here. What does it yeah. mean for the market, the stock market? Okay. Tie exactly. that exactly. to equities, exactly. the economy. Exactly. So that means that we think it's going to be possible to reopen it sooner. We think within a week from now, you will start seeing some limited moves. You know, a little bit like what you're seeing today in Germany, announcement for Monday. We think we're not too far behind. We think we're weak. It's a week, a week away from it. You know, it's going to be limited. It's, I'm not talking about, I'm talking baby steps, you know, but that tells us that, that sort of by the summertime, we may more substantially recover. And sometimes next year, uh, maybe in the second half of next year, economy reaches a high watermark, which means that the market could reach a high watermark in the first half of the next year. So that's basically the timeline that we expect. So, Marco, thanks for being here. It's Guy. So a lot of this assumes, I would think, that once people feel um, that we're somewhat out of the woods, things go back to normal, absolute norm, where we were three or four months ago. I'm hard-pressed 
to come up with a situation or a scenario where that takes place? Yeah, no, no, we're not talking about normal, normal things. Will some things will change forever? You know, I think some um, uh, uh, restriction measures and some control measures, for instance, checking the fever. I think that's going to become a new normal. You remember September 11, uh, uh, traveling in air before and and after. We all get used to basically being checked. Uh, you know, uh, you know, get sort of name tags in in the buildings, uh, pictures taken. You know, our luggage gets searched. So we get, you know, so I think we're just used to some of these things, like, for instance, like a temperature check, fever checks. And I think it just makes a lot of sense. And I think once when we get used to it, I think there's going to be economic value added. We're going to save tens and hundreds of thousands of lives from flu if we can actually be more careful about our behavior when it comes to uh, uh, contagious diseases. Hey, Marco, it's Dan. Um, you know, just kind of piggybacking on a little bit of what Guy just had to, uh, to say here. I mean, listen, you, you've made your bones in this business being somewhat um, contrarian here. It seems that mm-hmm. this call is somewhat consensus. We've been covering on this sh- the show mm-hmm. over the, this week how just the way strategists have moved. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the way I see this right now is just we, we've been hit with a hundred year storm, you know, the worst health crisis the world has faced in a hundred years, possibly one of the worst economic crises the world has faced in a hundred years. Look at what's going on with federal debt mm-hmm. to GDP all over the world here. And so you say to yourself, my goodness, there's just a lot of headwinds going forward. The stock market is probably the, long, the wrong lens to be viewing mm-hmm. any success that we have right now with this crisis. So. Mm-hmm. Why stick your neck out with with new highs, 3,600 by next year, when we just don't know what's going to happen here, if there's going to be other waves, other lockdowns? If there's another lockdown in 2020, it's lights mm-hmm. out for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. So so 3,400 highs, not, 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 not 36. Look, I think when it comes to current okay. economic crisis, I agree with you, it's the worst uh, that uh, ever happened, but it's a sort of... Um, uh, it's it's uh, something that was ordered, something that was done, and it can be undone when the conditions are met. You know, when it comes to world world uh, world health crisis in a hundred years, um, you know, I would I would uh, uh, somewhat disagree. I mean, we had uh, many sort of instances of, of severe uh, contagious diseases over the past hundred years. You know, right now, you know, if we are if we are at um, at um, 133,000 deaths globally. You know, keep in mind, 2017 flu was a multiple, large multiple. That. So it's a health crisis, and I think it's a health crisis because we don't know much about this virus. We're only learning as we go, and that's why it feels much worse than probably it is. When it comes to economic crisis, I do agree. Like, once when you shut down 100% of economy, that's by definition the worst possible crisis it can happen. Economy goes to zero. So that's why I don't think that sort of this is going to be something that we can sit on a historical data like 2008. I think this is very different. And it's very dependent on reopening it quickly, which I think will be possible. So I'm a little bit out of consensus on that one, more optimistic. Um, and, and look, let's also mention that we do have unprecedented amount of fiscal and monetary measures around the world. So we shouldn't even uh, neglect that as well as something that can help uh, basically bridge this, uh, call it cardiac arrest of economy. Hey, Marco, it's Tim. So around the horn here, and I'll go back to the data that you at J.P. Morgan and your team crunch very well, and it's your data. 
um, or it's, at least it's market data. And, and I, I applaud actually the deep breath you guys took as a team three weeks ago and said, actually, you looked at equity ownership and you looked at some of the market positioning and said you actually are very constructive based upon those numbers. So where are <laughs> we in the market? Because three weeks ago, uh, we were at one and a half to two standard deviations below uh, equity ownership on a historical basis. We've had a big run back in, but how big has it been? And give us the market data, because that's what I think you guys do so well. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Look, we are not far. We are X of these, what we call quarter and month end rebalances. So the first leg in the rally going into March 31st was basically pension funds adding, we estimate, about $170 billion of, of, of equities. You know, uh, so, so that was an inflow, no doubt. But the hedge fund, if you look at the hedge fund beta, did not move all that much. You know, so hedge funds are still very, very underinvested. And these systematic strategies that we are basically tracking with volatility targeters, risk parity, CTAs, you know, CTAs closed a bit short, especially NASDAQ, if you look at it, but they're still short S&P, you know, so positioning is still light, you know, and vol targeters, you know, those are people who basically invest based on inverse volatility or call it inverse VIX, very, very loosely speaking. Um, you know, they're still still under, uh, very much underway. They're pretty much close to the bottom. So positioning is still light. Um, and, 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 and that's also one of the reasons why we are positive here. Uh, so the only concern would be if the crisis lasts too long, um, you know, retail investors and citizens will need to dip into their 401ks. So that's the risk. If this lasts too long, you'll start depleting 401ks, which can produce some selling. But X of that, if we can get some better data, better sentiment, um, and if we can hold the levels here, Eventually, in the next few weeks, you will see um, you will see inflows from systematic folks, which can actually give us the next uh, next leg higher. You know, like so. So that's also one of the arguments why we think it's uh, uh, why we think it, why we're still positive despite this uh, pretty strong rally in the last few weeks. Marco, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. Can you give us a little more detail on how quickly you will open? Do you think the economy will open? What kinds of companies and how far away is it when we have packed stadiums or people going to concerts again? That's, you know, that's a very good question. So I think we will start with the baby steps in a week time, you know, and, and baby steps. I mean, you can look at Austria, Germany, Italy. You know, they're opening some, you know, limited clothing stores. You know, you know, landscaping, some construction businesses, very small mom and pop stores. So I think you'll see that that's a small part. It's, it's not big, but it, it, it maybe also helps the sentiment. Packed stadiums, it's, it's tough to say. You know, it, it, it's very tough. I, on that one, I would be a bit more cautious of, of cramming people with the same density as before. Um, uh, so, so on that one, you know, you know, maybe we're talking late summer. Uh, you know, or maybe we are tying it to the, some of the more of these identification programs or, or treatments, uh, if not vaccines. Keep in mind, the whole world is working on treatments. The whole world, wor world is trying to figure out the next steps on vaccine. Can you repurpose something old? Do you need to entirely come with something new? So on that side, I think news will get better. They're not going to get worse on that side, you know. But again, cramming people in the, in the, in the tight spaces, I, I'm a little bit, of, of course, that's going to be slower. And that's where we hope that sort of stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, can maybe plug a bit of that hole. That's going to last for, yeah. for a little bit longer than, than the initial reopening. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's not forget, Germany is slowly reopening small stores with physical distancing and act and no large gatherings till at least basically Labor Day, August 31st. So they're a long way off, although there are some baby steps 
Marco Kalanovic, J.P. Morgan Chase. Marco, thank you very much. Do appreciate that. All right. Coming up after the break here on Fast Money, we're going to talk a little bit about retail. If we can, we got Bed Bath & Beyond. Some numbers there. Target as well. We'll talk about retail, the consumer, where this market goes. And later on in the show, Craig Johnson is very bullish on stocks. We'll get his view as well. Stick around. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. All right, welcome back to CNBC's Fast Money. We showed you Bed Bath & Beyond there before the break. And stock is up after hours, about 8%. But keep in mind, the majority of their fiscal quarter ended before the full shutdown, and the majority of their stores are closed. So I'm not sure what data the machines are looking at there, but either way, there's Bed Bath & Beyond. Let's talk instead about Target, because most of their stores remain open, hardworking men and women, especially on the grocery side of Target stores. They're working to make sure that we can shop. The stock down a little bit today, but BMO upgrading that stock to an outperform at BMO Capital Markets and Karen. I imagine that you've got to love that upgrade. As hard hit as some of these names have been, at least there are analysts out that are saying things will get better. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with it. I'm long the stock. I think that things already have sort of gotten better in some ways for the targets, the Costco's, the Walmarts of the world, because I think they've actually pulled future sales into this the past couple of months. But... I think that Target will survive and prove themselves to be a great operator. You know, buy online, pick up in store. They have that capability. And so I think that even if the world goes back to somewhat quasi-normal, that they will have picked up additional business that they're likely to keep. And the stock's not crazy expensive. So I like it right here. Yeah, likes that as well. I mean, Tim, you had uh, Costco, I believe it was, raised their dividend. Jim Cramer this morning saying... If you cut your dividend, I'm selling you. If you raise your dividend, I'm buying you. Costco, one of four retail stocks up this year. Do you like Target? Do you like Costco? Do you like somebody else out there in the retail world? I, you know, I mean, and I love Jim's calls. I, I, I will say I think cutting dividends uh, for a lot of companies here is actually really proven. All right, Guy Dami, same question to you. Costco, Target, somebody else out there that you think will not only be a survivor, but is investable and will, will be profitable and a moneymaker for our viewers over the next couple of quarters, months, and years? Yeah, I think Target is the call. I mean, we talk about this. I'm sure Karen will agree. If you like Walmart at close to 25 times next year's numbers with similar EPS growth, you got to like Target at 16 and a half, 17. Not that suggests that Target should have the same multiple, but you got to sort of, I think that distance has to be somewhat narrowed. And maybe it's a function of, you know, Target's multiple increasing and Walmart's coming down. 
But I don't think a $125 price target for Target is out of the question. So, you know, given the choices you just gave me, I think Target absolutely is a play here. Dan? Yeah, I would just say that if you're, if you're bullish here on the market and it's predicated on the fact that you think the economy is going to reopen sooner than most think, then you can't be bullish on grocery stores going forward. I think it was David Rosenberg tweeted out earlier today that in the month of March, Americans added more food and drink to their pantries than they've added in March, just alone, than the last nine years combined. So when you think about pent-up demand for the sorts of things that people want to do once we reopen, and that's go out and eat in restaurants and that sort of thing, well, that's not great for consumption, in my opinion, because you're going to have to work off a lot of that inventory that are going to be in households that they've been hoarding. So I think there's a lot of fits, a lot of fits and starts here. Sully, it goes back to your tweet that I didn't retweet um, about data. I think you have to consume as much of it as possible here. And there's little things in the cracks that are going to make a lot of sense because we may find ourselves in July and August looking back and say, oh, there wasn't the pent-up dan- uh, demand that we expected when we were saying, oh, the stock market at 2800 is a great buy here because of it. Well, if we, Dan, agreed on everything, then I might start to worry about my own viewpoint. But let's, 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 and I kid with, with love and jest. <laughs> I want to ask you very quickly before we move on about Macy's. And I'm not trying to pile on here with Macy's, okay? A lot of good people work there, stores across the country. It's got a $1.6 billion market cap, Dan. There was a time where maybe it's still true. The, the Herald Square building, one building, was valued at $2 billion. One building, two billion. Now the company's market cap is one point six billion. What happens here to Macy's ultimately? Well, I mean, listen. Unfortunately, this is a trend that's been going on for years. Is that we've been overstored in America, and department stores just don't make a lot of sense. They didn't make a lot of sense pre-coronavirus. They probably don't make a lot of sense going forward. I suspect Macy's has some assets that we probably um, don't are not reflected in their market cap. And the sum of the parts is worth more. The brand is certainly worth more. I suspect you see it as part of an omnichannel strategy with someone, I don't know, maybe it's Amazon. They use the real estate for logistics and storage and all that sort of stuff. They use the brand as an online store. But a lot of these department stores are not going to be around in five to ten years. Karen, what are your thoughts? Brian, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to pile one, on Macy's. They're just perhaps the biggest, most well-known. Right. I mean, the debt's been telling you that things are in trouble, uh, not going well there. And they did hire Lazard to help them think about restructuring, which doesn't necessarily mean bankruptcy. But uh, I mean, the department store space is clearly so troubled. And one just worth noting, JCPenney, even though it's really small now, announced today that they would not make a debt payment. And if you look at their bonds, these are bonds that are due June 1st of this year. They've already they were already trading terribly. But if you look at that absolute just uh, it fell off a cliff today. They thought they would have more time, that they, they would probably get a June payment. And now it's just trading like, all right, they're going to file for bankruptcy. And what do we as unsecured debt holders, what value are we really going to have? So that was sort of in very slow motion. But today was sort of the, the death knell, I think, for JCPenney, which is sad. Yeah, I mean, we often forget there's a lot of people behind those numbers there. Amazing. The one thing, I'll, I'll put that in context before, before we go to break. Macy's market cap of $1.6 billion, not only was it kicked out of the S&P 500, put in the small caps, it would make it one of the smallest mid-cap stocks in the world. I mean, truly a remarkable, uh, sad story there for Macy's. All right, coming up after the break, 
Hopefully some good news in the pharmaceutical biotech world. We're going to get that on Abbott Labs as well. we got Meg Terrell coming up on that to talk more about what they are doing. And oil, wow, can't get out of its own way. A lot of worry that all the world's inventory will soon be filled. Oil's current contract below 20 bucks earlier today. And we're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. All right, welcome back. Every day we're certainly hoping for a little bit of good news from all the hardworking women and men scientists out there trying to find us either a treatment, an antibody, or perhaps just a straight-up vaccine, which would change everything. Abbott also doing its part. Let's find out from Meg Terrell exactly where they may stand in this crucial fight. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, it's kind of the next wave in testing. Abbott is announcing that uh, tomorrow it will launch an antibody test for the novel coronavirus. So this is a test that will actually detect whether you've had the infection. It's a blood test. So that's different from the PCR tests that tell you if you're currently infected. Uh, now, they say they plan to supply 4 million tests in April to the U.S. and ramp up to being able to supply 20 million of these tests a month by June. And this is the third test for COVID-19 that Abbott has launched. Of course, the previous two are those PCR tests to detect current infection. One of them is that point of care rapid test that can tell you within five to 13 minutes. And the other is a high throughput test that's done in labs, guys. So a lot of people looking to these antibody tests to potentially tell us who's been infected and who might have immunity as we all start to think about going back out into society and back to work. But that immunity question is still open, Brian. We don't know how long people are immune, if they're immune, after they've been infected. So that's an open question. Back over to you. Yeah, I think that is the question. Once you've had it and you get better, like our own Elon Mui and her family, thank goodness, are you sort of superhuman in a way that you can just, you know, you are immune? I Let's hope we are, Meg, because we need some... Some good news. Meg Terrell, always bringing us the news. Meg, thank you very much. All right, coming up, Citigroup calling the home builder stocks a lost year this year. I think we can all agree on that. It's already been a heck of a year so far. But are any of these names investable? They think that they are. We'll talk more about that. Oil and get a bullish view on the stock market. Stick around. All right, welcome back here. Let's do a little fast money type segment, shall we? Because Citigroup's analysts are getting bullish on the home builders. Quote, we view current home builder share prices as providing a historically attractive entry point and initiate on Pulte, D.H. Horton, Lennar as a buy. Dan Nathan, they said 2020 is a lost year, but there's attractive entry points. Didn't help the stocks today. They got walloped, actually. 
Yeah, listen, again, this goes back to what I was saying at the top of the show. We're two months into this economic crisis. We have no visibility on what the consumer looks like. We have no visibility on what the consumer's balance sheet looks like. I suspect on the back end of this crisis, whenever it happens, we are going to see massive consumer deleveraging. That does not speak well for large asset purchases like homes. It doesn't speak well for the sorts of credit need to be extended to consumers to buy those. So I just don't, you know, listen, this is not a pound the table call. I read it. It was initiation. They initiated some with buys based on valuation looking past 2020. It's not a particularly compelling call two weeks into into our, our into what is likely to be a recession here in Q2. So to me, it's nothing to do here. Yeah, well, okay. Guy Dami, you feel any differently? I mean, what they noted was the, these companies are trading on average at about 1.1 times tangible book value. The average is like 1.7. So even if you think it's going to be miserable and the spring selling season is pretty much shot already anywhere in America, they're just getting almost too cheap to ignore. It's interesting, though. It goes back to something Karen said a couple shows ago in terms of, I mean, you can talk about what book value is, but you know, I'm not saying anybody's being disingenuous here, but I think the dance point, how do you actually know? So, yeah, the, the, there, was a, there was an argument out there 30%, 35% ago to buy a lot of these home builders on valuation. And here we are now. You know, they've each had a, a decent bounce off that low we made a few weeks ago. All three of them, if you talk about tall, uh, Pulte, DHI, traded about the same uh, price to earnings multiple. I just don't see any compelling reason to go out and buy these things for a play that you're looking at a year when there's so much uncertainty over the next, if not week, definitely the next, you know, f- few months or so. So I, you know, I, I, I see what they're saying. I just don't agree at this time. All right, that's, that's two out of three dentists don't approve this analyst call. Karen, Karen Feinerman, do you do you agree? Or are you going to make it three out of three because you were you were your name dropped a few seconds ago? I, mean, I don't. I don't disagree, really, but it's not compelling enough for me. I mean, unlike 2008, where those stocks just got absolutely obliterated, this, you know, this bounce back that they've had has been enormous. There's a couple great things that are still there. Going into this downturn, they were under, the, the market was undersupplied of new homes, so that's good. Also, rates are low. Rates are still low. But one of the compelling things about home builders was that employment was so high. Obviously, that has been completely blown up like nothing we've seen in the last uh, 70 years, 80 years. The, uh, the other thing that is slight positive, they had trouble finding workers, construction workers. All right, we'll hear from Karen in just a bit here. Obviously, physical distancing does involve wires, cables, and Wi-Fi, and it's not always perfect. All right, you know what else isn't perfect? The oil markets. In fact, a lot of new concern that storage everywhere is going to be filled everywhere soon. Oil today below 20, at least in the current contract. We'll talk more about oil. Netflix hitting a new high. We got a new competitor coming from us tonight. And by the way, we have a special tonight, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. Markets and turmoil. Stick around. Well, if you thought a 10-plus million barrel-a-day cut from OPEC Plus and maybe some U.S. producers would help the price of oil, you might want to think again. Crude oil today below 20 at one point. The forward contracts are a little bit more expensive, a little higher as we expect to come out of this. But right now, the current contract falling below 20 bucks. We're going to get the options action in a second, but I want to bring Mike Cohen for a different reason because Mike Cohen, obviously known as the options guy, but he's also a former oil trader as well, Mike. And everything I'm reading says... 
that all the storage offshore, onshore, your mama's bathtub, everywhere it is, is pretty much going to be filled up soon. I mean, how much worse do you think this oil story could get? Well, you're hitting right on the important point, which is that you know, demand has obviously been hit very, very uh, heavily. And, you know, there's a limit to how much storage we have available to store crude oil. So I think, you know, right now we probably have something in the neighborhood of 460 million barrels in storage, plus the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has got another 700 million in it. But, you know, these are really big numbers that we're dealing with. You know, when you start having uh, supply surpluses in the neighborhood of 10 million barrels a day or more, uh, it becomes a real logistical problem where you're going to put that oil and as we look at the futures market, I mean, you were alluding to this. The futures market is in steep contango. What does that mean? The oil that, you know, spot oil and the near-term future are around 20 bucks, as you just pointed out. And the longer-term futures are much higher. But we saw some bearish bets today. The July futures options, for example, we saw a bet basically that that could drop below 20 as well. That was a 10 million barrel bet. So that also in uh, the integrated names, we're seeing a lot of bearish bets, Exxon, Chevron among them. All right, good analysis there. I want to turn to an equity, and that is Schlumberger. It's obviously the, the biggest, them and Halliburton are the two biggest oil services companies globally. I mean, I guess if you believe every oil company is going to go out of business, then you sell everything. But is there any reason to be optimistic? Or is anybody making any kind of a bet either way on SLB? Yeah, so SLB, as you point out, is going to be reporting this week. Uh, the options market's implying a move of about 9%. That's considerably larger than what it has averaged historically. Probably not surprising given how hard the stock has been hit. We saw a lot of call activity, the June 12 and a half calls. This with the stock trading about 1480. You might think that's bullish, but actually I think what was going on there is people who own the stock are selling those deep in the money calls. That gives them a little bit of a hedge against, you know, maybe as much as a 20% decline in the stock but also pays them a dollar in premium. That may not sound like much per share, but if you're dealing with a stock that's less than 15 bucks, that's a nice little bit of yield that they're collecting. So I think they're trying to sell the move, and they're not expecting a whole lot of upside out of it. Okay, Mike Coe, thank you very much. Mike, do appreciate that. Tim, I know you've been sort of nibbling around or nibbling on Schlumberger. All right, well... According to my notes here, Tim Seymour has been nibbling on or around SLB. Gaia Dami, I mean, you've talked about this name in the past as well. I mean, you get my point. If you believe the, most of these oil company stocks are down 70 and 80 percent, you either believe they're going to go bankrupt, many will, or there will be survivors. And if there is an oil market in 10 years, which there probably will be, some of these have got to be investable at some point. No? Yeah, that, yeah. They're definitely going to be survivors, but they're also going to be bankruptcies. And quite frankly, there should be. I hate to say that. It doesn't give me any it doesn't give me any joy to say that. But, you know, if you believe in capitalism and corporate Darwinism, there should be. And again, I'll say this. Uh, we are in we when I say we the United States, we're dancing a very dangerous dance in when the price is thirty dollars higher. Oil is much too high. We got to get it lower. And then when it goes low, we need to get it higher. I mean, one has to wonder what's happening behind the scenes with those conversations. That coupled with the fact that for all the bloviating, uh, crude's now $20. I mean, it's sort of scary if you really look out there. And I do think with all my heart that the Russians and the Saudis, who people will say were fighting with each other, were not fighting with each other at all. I think it's a concerted effort to undermine our energy industry. And quite frankly and unfortunately, they're being very successful at it.
Okay, F- fair enough. By the way, I interviewed the Saudi energy minister, I think it was two days ago. The days are kind of blending together. That's up on CBC.com, a 21-minute interview. Check it out if you're, if you're so inclined. Dan, Nathan, any point of view on oil or the oil complex in general? You know, um, Sully, you know, Guy made a really good point about the price of oil and, and all the stuff that's going on. And what are we giving up politically to, to for all these machinations that we've had over the last you know couple months here? It seems a bit odd. But when you look at the XLE, the Energy Select ETF, 45 percent of that or so is Exxon and Chevron. You know, it's up significantly from the recent lows last month versus crude, which just seems like it wants to be a teenager sometime very soon. So to your point, you know, it seems to be the major integrated names um, people feel a little bit better about than the price of crude. But then I'll take you the other way. And this is the most bizarro thing going on. Look at Tesla and how that acts. That's obviously pretty contrary to what's going on with oil. Yeah, it certainly is. Maybe there's room for everybody out there, Dan. Thank you very much. Good stuff. All right, coming up, Netflix. That stock making investors happy today. We're all kind of forced to Netflix and chill. The stock up 3% today, but they got a new competitor from a company that we know. We'll talk about that. Craig Johnson, he called this rally about two weeks ago. What does he see happening now? He'll be your guest as well. We're back on Fast Money right after this. Well, despite everything else going on in the world, and there are some things going on, it's kind of a proud day for us here in the NBC Universal Comcast family, Julia Borston, because today is the launch of a new streaming service. I guess maybe in some weird way it's, it's timely because we need this probably more than ever now. Well, people are streaming a lot of content at home, but that's right. Brian, NBC Universal, the parent company of this network, kicking off its soft launch of Peacock today. This is an ad-supported streaming service that will be rolling out starting today to Comcast X1 and its Flex customers before a nationwide launch where it will be available to anyone on July 15th. Now, in some ways, the new service could not come at a better time. Streaming is at an all-time high. Comcast reporting a 50% increase in on-demand consumption year over year, while voice remote searches for free content are up nearly 250%. Now, Peacock should benefit from the captive audience eager for premium streaming video that they don't have to pay more for. And Peacock has been able to secure 10 brands to be launch sponsors, drawn to the fact that it's promising a maximum of just five minutes of ad per, ads per hour. But the downside of launching now is that it, Peacock is joining a crowded field of streaming options with HBO Max launching next month. Also, NBC Universal can't produce any new shows right now, which will delay the launch of Peacock's originals. And it won't have the Olympics to promote its July 15th broader launch. Now, Peacock chief Matt Strauss says the company is actually evaluating whether it can move that broad launch earlier to take advantage of people spending more time as they shelter at home, as they spend more time streaming. And one advantage that Comcast has is it looks to reach its target of 30 million subscribers to Peacock by 2024. The broadband service that Comcast offers is considered more invaluable than ever right now. And Comcast is, of course, promoting and bundling Peacock to those customers. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julie, thank you very much. Tim Seymour, Netflix hitting a new all-time high today. Is it still a good bet for our viewers' money? Well, if you think about the company and and what's done in terms of year-to-date and also 50% in the last 20 trading days uh, on this sentiment and this sense that people are...
I think we lost Tim's phone as well. We're going to continue Fast Money, Karen. Tim's going to send us a letter, and we're going to read it on the air about his stock <laughs> views. It'll take three weeks to get here. <laughs> guy, guy, guy Adami, and do you also have a phone and or internet connection you can send to Tim? I, I'll shoot him a quick letter. But in terms of Netflix, I mean, you know, I, I still I still say in the Netflix camp, I understand all the contrarian views about Netflix, but the stock's going higher. And now it's closed above, I believe, the all-time high. The volume wasn't ridiculous today. 13 million shares typically trades eight. There's no reason to believe that it's exhausted itself on the upside in the environment we currently find ourselves in. And I got to tell you something, that Tiger King or Tiger Man or whatever that show is, that's one of the most ridiculous shows I've ever seen. And I say that ridiculous in the best sense of the word. So I still think Netflix goes higher from here. I'm probably the only person in America that hasn't seen it, Guy Adami, because I'm just watching the new Peacock Network. Although I will say Giri Haji on Netflix. Check it out. Check it out. All right. Guys, thank you very much. We'll appreciate it. Try to get Tim there. When Tim, start. Break out your feather quill and send us some notice tomorrow. All right, Dan, appreciate it, Karen. Everybody stay well and safe. We'll see you tomorrow. After the break, we're not done. Craig Johnson of Piper Sandler called this rally or move about a week and a half ago. So what's he see now? We're going to find out next. All right, welcome back here. Let's now get a guest in here, Craig Johnson of Piper Sandler, because if you remember back when, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, I think it was Craig, March 23rd, which may or may not have been our last day at the NASDAQ, to be honest with you, if I remember correctly. You were bullish on the market since that time, since that interview right here on this fine program. Stocks are up, I think, around on average 20%. Congrats, my friend. You nailed it. If people listen to you, they made money. But what have you done for us lately? Where are things going now? (laughs) You know, Brian, I just got a text from a friend just a moment ago asking me that question. What have we done for us lately? And You know, honestly, the bulls really hit the gas like they saw a green light there on March 23rd. And it looks like to us that uh, we're not done going up. And there's a lot of investors out there that are asking a lot of questions like, when are we going to get a retest? When are we going to get a pullback? Well, the answer really simply is we're not going to get a pullback. Because when I go through and I start looking at all the stocks in the NASDAQ, all the stocks in the S&P 500, I haven't seen any of these stocks come back and start breaking back below the March 23rd lows at this point in time. So I think at this point in time, we're going to see a move that's going to continue higher, probably rally up toward 3,000 here in the near term, as I continue to see a lot of stocks working, a lot of stocks making higher highs and higher lows. And then ultimately, Brian, I think you're going to go sideways for a quarter or so, digest all this negative news around Corona, really see what's going to happen with earnings. And then by year end, you get a pretty good Santa Claus rally to take you up to that 3,600 number, which is a number that we still stand behind. And in fact, I updated our models on that today, and it uh, hasn't changed more than 2% since we made that uh, 3,600 call back in the November timeframe. A lot of people are very vague. You are not. You are saying that we, we made a run. We're going to probably be flat, you know, have some volatility, is what basically you're saying, for a quarter, quarter and a half, or two, and then get an end-of-year rally. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly what you're hearing, Brian. And I think from a sector perspective, how should we play this? I think we should be overweight tech because I don't think the leadership of this market has changed. I think we should also be overweight consumer cyclicals. And I think we should also still be overweight healthcare. as I'm starting to see biotech starting to really break out in our technical work right now. 
Very quickly, Netflix, we talked about it. The technical setup you think looks good based on your latest research that I saw. The technical setup on Netflix looks great. And I would say that from me looking at the charts, 525 to 550 is my measured objective in the next 12 to 18 months. Okay, very quickly. Also, T-Mobile. T-Mobile to me is uh, not quite as interesting. I'd rather own some of the semiconductor stocks in T-Mobile right now. Craig Johnson of Piper Stanley nailed it on March 23rd. 20% gain. Craig, you're the best. Thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate you coming on Fast Money. Appreciate everybody watching. See you tomorrow. Mad with Jim starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.